The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, and we'll be looking at the, the I guess, the last two-thirds of the chapter today. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. And the title of the message today is, is um, really super appropriate for what the text is, is I, I believe, telling us today. Have you ever been um, given the benefit of the doubt? Maybe uh, you felt like you didn't necessarily deserve the treatment you got, you got treated better than you deserve. Anybody ever had that? Let me give you an example. If you've ever been somewhere unfamiliar and maybe you felt like you didn't belong, um, you didn't know anyone, you weren't familiar with the place, but you knew somebody that was there. And just by virtue of your relationship with that person who was accepted in that environment or who was um, maybe a, a fixture or someone well-known in that context, because you knew them, that was all you needed. They vouched for you, and because of your relationship with them, you were um, accepted in, in a place where you had, you had no, uh, no experience, no uh, prior um, exposure to that. Does that make sense? In other words, you have a good friend and they're taking you somewhere because you're with them. As long as you're with them, you're good. Right? If you were to walk in that place alone and no one knew you and no one knew that you knew that person, your friend, then they would all be looking at you like, what are you doing here? Who are you? What right do you have to be here? But because you're with them, you're accepted. So the title today, he's not looking at you. This is, the, I guess, the, the best way I could come up with to phrase the dynamic of what happens when, inevitably, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat. And let me just, spoiler alert, let me just tell you what's going to happen on that day. When I, when I stand before God in judgment, let me give you a, a summary of what that will look like. I'm going to be guilty. My position is going to be indefensible. There's nothing I could say or do that will possibly allow me to go free. Except for the fact that the judge won't be looking at me. He'll be looking at Jesus. And He'll be looking at me through the lens of a bloody cross. And because of that, I will be set free. I'll be forgiven. And I'll be declared not guilty. Not because of me. And not because of who I am. Did you hear the song? That wasn't a coincidence. 
I knew I was going to preach this text on this day two months ago. I didn't know what the choir was going to sing. It's not because of who I am. It's because of who He is. And so, when, when the judge of all creation looks at me, He's not looking at me. He's looking at Jesus. And because of my association with Christ, I will be counted free. That, that's the, the summary, the theme of the text today and why it's so uh, unbelievably important that we get a hold of that principle, that we understand that we don't have enough in us to be right with God. And I, I pray that's going to be uh, painfully obvious by the time we get to the end of this text. So follow with me, if you will. The words will be on the screen. I'm going to read uh, from my Bible, Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And here's what Paul was inspired to write by the Holy Spirit. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Father, in Jesus' name I pray that you will speak so clearly to us today. Let us understand and help us be obedient. In Christ's name, amen. That last verse kind of brings everything home. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Wouldn't that be a tragedy? 
we actually were to say, well, I know Jesus died, but he didn't have to. That would be one of the most horrendous, the most horrendous travesties of justice ever in mankind's history. So today, by looking at this text and looking at how Paul discusses his interaction with Peter and Peter's actions that were, as he calls them, hypocritical, I think we're going to see some things come into clear focus. And there's really two main breakdowns in this text, really, two paragraphs, actually, that I believe will help us understand. The first one is this. Live according to the truth of the gospel. Live according to the truth of the gospel. Now, that sounds almost like too obvious, right? Well, of course you're supposed to do that. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to live according to the gospel, right? And that's easy to say, but it's not easy to do, right? It's e- maybe it would be easy to do if, uh, or easier to do if you were to never leave the house, to never be around people, to never encounter anything, of course, then there's one thing that you could never get away from, right? Your sinful heart and mind. And that's with you wherever you go. You can't get away from that. This is one of the unfortunate errors that uh, the monks of religious history made. They thought that by separating themselves from culture, they could be more godly. They just neglected to remember that they were still there. So you can never separate yourself from sin because you're a sinner, right? Does that make sense? So, so that, that was the error. They tried to be so holy, but yet they were so heavenly minded they were no earthly good. And so they tried to draw near to God and all they did was take that extra spiritual influence away from those who needed it most. So here's what happens in our first paragraph in this text. Peter causes a problem. And Paul is in open opposition to him on this issue. And and Paul says in verse 11, he stood condemned. He was self-condemned. So here's why that's the case. Peter changed his behavior. So if you see what, what happened, if you remember what happened, Peter was eating, fellowshipping with Gentiles. And the verb there is a continual type of thing. So it's not like he just went to be with the Gentiles one time and then never did it again. It was a consistent practice because he understood after his visit to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, hey, look at this. Gentiles are being saved too. So we got something in common. We're brothers, right? So he was hanging out with the Gentiles, uh, but then some Jews, some friends of James showed up And now all of a sudden Peter starts backing away. Oh, no, no, I wasn't eating with them. I wasn't with them. I was was over here. We were, I'm just, uh, I'm just, uh, you know, trying to be the the bridge builder here. I'm I'm not trying to hang out with these folks. He was withdrawing and was separating himself from the Gentiles. And you know why? I know we can all identify with this. Peter was afraid of what the Jews would think of him. Anybody identify? Well, I know what's right, and I know what I ought to do, 
well, what will they think of me if I do that? So should I really do what's right or should I do what's wrong because I value this friendship or this relationship more than I value obedience to God? Because that's really what it boils down to, right? If, if I'm willing to sacrifice my convictions of the truth because of what this friend or that person might think of me, then how, how good a friend really is that? If they're going to look down on me for following Jesus, right? I hope, hope you're understanding what's going on here. Because this speaks directly to some things in our culture um, that are always around us. The word that Paul used here in this text, in verse 12, where it says he was fearing the party of the circumcision, fearing the Jews, it's the Greek word phobos, where we get our English word phobia. We're so deathly afraid of something. That's what he's talking about. Timothy George wrote that based on this text, racism, prejudice, bigotry of any brand in any culture is incompatible with the truth of the gospel. Now, that's a very um, churchy thing for a preacher to say. Racism, prejudice, bigotry, that's wrong. But let's take it a, a step further. What if we would, in church context, what if we would agree, yep, that's right, that's wrong. But then when we get out in the world, what if we don't hold to that conviction because we're worried about what our friends might say? Maybe our friends need Jesus. Y'all all right? Everybody okay? Okay. See, Peter's hypocrisy was contagious, and that's how it happens in our world. Hypocrisy becomes contagious because one person does it, and well, they did it. I mean, maybe it's not terrible. You remember a fellow named Barnabas from chapter 2, verse 1? You remember who he was? Because Paul shows up to Jerusalem with two buddies, Barnabas and Titus. Remember those guys? We talked about them last Sunday. Barnabas is a Jewish Christian. Titus is a Gentile Christian. And they're on either side of Paul. But you see here in verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away. So Barnabas, who was one of Paul's right-hand men right at that previous text, and now all of a sudden he's carried away into sin because of Peter. And, and you know who Peter was? Peter, James, and John, the inner circle with, with Jesus, one of the pillars of the New Testament church. And remember back in Acts 2, he's the one who stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached the first sermon that launched the New Testament church. It was so powerful the way God used him. And now he's being a hypocrite because he's preaching the gospel, but yet he's not willing to take the stand when it gets difficult, when relationships are at, at, at risk. And so Paul took a stand. 
He, he saw that Peter's actions and those around him did not match the truth of the gospel. This is so interesting. Talk about word pictures. The Greek word here is the word where we get our word orthopedic. So literally, he's, Paul is telling Peter, you're, you're walking, your feet aren't straight in the way you're walking. You're not walking behind Jesus. You need to go see a doctor about that, basically. That's what he's saying. You're, you're not walking straight. And Paul confronted him, verse 14. But you know what? Peter had a, a history of taking his eyes off of Jesus, didn't he? You remember when Jesus was walking on the water? Who got out of the boat? Peter did. And he was doing great. As long as he was looking at Jesus. And then all of a sudden he took his eyes off Jesus and he started looking at the waves. And he felt the wind on his face. And he looked down and he said, Oh my goodness, I'm standing on the water. And guess what he did? He started sinking. Because he took his eyes off Jesus. How about when Jesus was arrested and led off by soldiers? And Peter's warming himself in the courtyard. And person after person walk up to him. Hey, you're one of those disciples, aren't you? You were with Jesus. Oh, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, why would he say that? He had just got through saying, Hey, I'm willing to go to, to prison or to, even to death. I'll, to, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. And you remember what Jesus said to him? Really? Will you? Because before tomorrow and the rooster crows, you're going to deny three times that you even know who I am. And sure enough, even a young slave girl was too intimidating to Peter because she accused him of, of all things. You know Jesus, don't you? You follow Jesus, don't you? Now how will we apply that to our lives? What's more important? This relationship, this friendship, this... Um, reputation among those in the world or I want to honor Christ I want Jesus to be pleased with me I want God to be glorified I'm going to stand for Jesus and I'm not going to hide the fact that I know Jesus and follow Jesus And it doesn't matter who it is it doesn't matter what they say is that where we are? Can we, can we faithfully, honestly make that statement? That it doesn't matter who asks me. It doesn't matter what situation I'm in. I'm following Jesus. And he, quite frankly, the opinion of Jesus Christ is far more valuable to me than the, the opinion of any other human being. Or, or it should be, right? But that's what it looks like to live according to the truth of the gospel. When it gets difficult, not when we're sitting in church and everybody can smile and nod and agree and, and be safe. I'm talking about when you're out in the community, when you're on the job, when you're with your hunting buddies, or when you're at a NASCAR race, or when you're just out in the world. And assumptions are made and perspectives are shared and... How do we really stand for Jesus when it's tough? 
Anybody can stand for Jesus in the middle of a church sanctuary. That's not impressive to Jesus. What's valuable is when you're in the world and folks who may look at you differently when you take that stand and you still choose to plant your feet, square your shoulders and say, no, Jesus Christ means more to me than you. And you're going to have to be alright with that. Right? We're not trying to be offensive. We're not trying to be unkind. But when it comes down to do I honor Jesus or do I honor this person or that person? It's got to be Jesus. It's got to be Jesus. And that means in practical terms legalism, racism, hypocrisy, None of those things have a place in God's church. None of them. The only problem is we have all of them. We have all of them. Great leaders can still fall. Grace means there are no second class Christians and standing for the gospel can sometimes be very lonely. It's still right. It's still right. In fact, it will always be right to live according to the truth of the gospel. Second, and, and finally, seek justification in Christ. Seek your justification in Christ. From verse 15 to the end of this chapter, you start to see Paul uh, unfolding this document and, and this argument, the way he's writing and, and trying to inform the church about what has happened and why it's such a big deal. And he's trying to help folks understand it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. In fact, verse 16, if you write in your Bible, you should have all kind of underlines and circles and stars around verse 16 in this text. This is the key verse to the entire book of Galatians right here. Galatians 2.16. A man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And the last part of that verse, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. See, Paul says we are Jews by nature and not Gentiles. Nevertheless, they still know they are justified by faith, not works. And then he says, even we have believed in Jesus, so we'd be justified by faith and not works. And then in the end of verse 16, as I said, no flesh will be justified by works. Every single one of these words, forms of justify or justified, every single one of them, four times in verses 16 and 17, they're all passive. You know what that tells us? Jesus did that. Jesus justifies us. If we were justified by works, that would help us try to think that we did something. Because we worked. We did this or that. It's passive because we're justified by Jesus. He does this for us. And He reminds us through this letter that Jesus has already dealt with the law. And having faith in Jesus doesn't keep you from being a sinner but it helps you understand how you are justified when you stand before God. And so this interesting verse here, verse 17, 
if while we're seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? This right here, this next little rhetorical answer, this is the strongest possible statement to refute another statement. When it, when it says in your Bible, verse 17, may it never be, or maybe it says God forbid, this is the strongest negative statement that Paul could possibly find to use in the Greek language. This is not the truth. Christ is not the author of sin. He's the source of justification. Paul says, if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. You know what that means? He's going to all these, all these lengths to demonstrate to us that you can't get to heaven by doing good stuff. That's the, the layman's summary. If you think that you're going to live this life, and at the end of your life you're going to take a look at, here's all my good stuff, here's all my bad stuff. I hope this one outweighs this one. And if it does, I'm good. That's a lie. That is salvation by works. That, that's not how this happens. And so Paul says, I've done all this work, I've preached all these gospel messages trying to help people understand that we cannot be justified by the law. And so he says, if, I'm, if I rebuild that after I've already torn it down, then I'm just showing how bad a sinner I really am. That's what he's talking about in verse 18. If I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Through the law, I died to the law so I could live to God. We, we, we don't want to try to muddy the water and, and try to confuse people. And so it's re really important that every time we think about this, talk about this, or have conversations about it, we have to be very careful that we are uh, clear with what we're saying. It is impossible to work your way to heaven. It's impossible to do enough good deeds to merit favor with the Lord. He, and and he, we're, this is where we're building to, that last verse, verse 21. Because when we, when we start to think, well, I've done a lot of good things though. I've helped a lot of people. Okay, and? Do you still sin? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever been dishonest? Have you ever stolen anything? Time? Material? Have you ever looked lustfully at another human being? Have you ever coveted someone else's possessions? Have you ever had an idol where something else was more important to you than God? See, the sad part of this is we don't understand that every single one of these... And I'm, if, you, if you didn't notice, I was talking about the Ten Commandments... It, Every single one of them. All ten. Every one of us have broken all ten. And that doesn't even scratch the surface of our depravity. 
Just let that sink in a minute. Before we fool ourselves into saying, oh, but I'm a, I'm a good person, really? Well, then your definition of good and my definition of good are far different. Because I know I've, I've done a, a couple of good things in my life, but I'm not a good person. There, there are no good people. Kind of destroys that whole question. Well, why would uh, uh, God let a good person go, go to hell? Well, here's the answer. There are no good people. There's bad people and Jesus. And, and so I'm one of the people, which means I'm bad. And that means I need Jesus. So the more we think about this and read and study, try to understand, we have to get to that Conclusion where we say there simply is no other way to be right with God except through the blood and sacrifice of Christ. There's just no other way. Paul tries to make that crystal clear when he gets to verse 20, which is perhaps one of the more well-known verses in this, in this book, in this letter. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Let me just restate that in different order to show the emphasis that Paul puts on these words. Because you know the order of the words, that means something. And sometimes that gets lost in English. Paul says, with Christ I've been crucified. Christ is is primary. Because He's the most important one in the book. With Christ, I've been crucified. The word crucified, and I, I hate to throw all this in, but it's just so important that you understand what this means. The, the, the grammar, the, the Greek language, why Paul was inspired to say this exactly the way he said it. With Christ, I have been crucified. That's a perfect tense verb in the passive voice, which means I have been crucified. It's a completed action that happened to me in the past tense, but it's got a result that endures on forever and ever. And because it's passive, that means we didn't do it, Jesus did it. With Christ, I have been crucified. And I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And then again, in the middle of verse 20, by faith I live in the Son of God. So you see what's important here? You see why Paul was inspired to put the words in the exact order he put them in? What's most important? By faith with Christ. That's the most important thing. With Christ I've been crucified. By faith I live in the Son of God. He's the one who loved me. He's the one who gave Himself up for me. 
Timothy George writes again, on the cross, sin's debt has been fully paid and Satan's mask has been taken off and hell has been put on notice that its time is running out. And it was all because of something Jesus did, not something we do. Jesus did it. We, we can't earn our righteousness. And so because our righteousness is only given to us from Jesus, Paul says in the last verse, I would never do away with the grace of God. I would never nullify the grace of God. Because if we could be righteous by ourselves, then Jesus literally, as He says, died for nothing. He died for nothing. That means... the. Here's what that, let me translate that for you into more uh, clear terms. It basically means God was wrong. It means His whole plan, when the Bible says Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, the whole plan of God was just a big mistake. That's, that's what we're saying here. If we, if we think for a moment that we can by our own merit, because we're good and we're doing good things, if we think we can get to heaven that way, apart from Jesus, then that means we might as well just take this and just throw it out because everything in here, the whole plan of God is just wrong. Is that really what we're prepared to say? That the Creator of the universe, the Creator of everything we see, including us, he, he just messed up. He miscalculated. Is that what we're willing to say? Because the crucifixion of Jesus was not a miscalculation. It was not a lapse in judgment. It certainly was no mistake. What it was, was the perfect and only plan for the salvation of sinners. And I are one. I need that. If it weren't for that, I'd be lost. I'd be helpless and hopeless. And I'd be going to hell. And rightfully so. If it were not for Jesus. If it were not for the, for the cross. If, if we, we just... There's no way we can appropriately understand the enormity of what, what this is. Sometimes when we're sitting here and we're reading it and it's in front of us, sometimes we can say, oh yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. Yeah, Jesus had to die for our salvation. I, okay, I get it. But do we really get it? I don't think we get it. I don't think we fully understand. I don't think we can. I don't think we can possibly grasp what a big deal that is. I'd like to, I mean, I'd like to think I, I get it, but I don't, I, as soon as I think I get it, I'm pretty sure I don't. If we could be righteous by ourselves, Jesus died for nothing. The Greek words that are translated justified and righteous, they have the same root. They have the same root word. It's, it is not forgiveness that's the fruit of justification. And it's not atonement that's the basis of justification. 
Justification is the verdict that has been issued by a righteous judge. That means the, the one... That, I saw in the news this week that one of our Supreme Court justices is planning on retiring, which means there's going to be another one trying to, to, to be added in his, in his place. Judge uh, Stephen Breyer, I think is his name, he announced that he's going to retire. And the only reason I bring that up is not to be the least bit political, but just to remind all of us whatever we think about the Supreme Court, whatever we think about individual justices on that court, whatever we think about this process of this, this judge is retiring and he has typically voted this way and now, oh, what's going to happen when someone else takes his place and they're going to be better or worse, depending, you know, whatever we believe about that, here's what I know. There is only one righteous judge. And he's not elected by man. And he's not sitting on a court somewhere in D.C. There's only one righteous judge. And he's Lord of all creation. So, that's the one that issues the verdict that we are justified. So, so what does that mean? For us, in a practical sense, what does that mean? Here's what it means. There is only one way God can look at us and say, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. There's only one way that can happen. He's not looking at you. He's looking at Jesus. And I'm, I'm so thankful He does. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.